This week on Games You Deserve, we're talking about video game remakes. Plus, I'm Smitty. I'm going to get into what makes special reserve games tick. Plus, I'm Dan. Things get all shook up at the game of the week. up a bunch of uh, older uh, FPS games and I've been playing all kinds and uh, digging through the uh, the old library and so that kind of made me think that uh, you know maybe this week's game of the week would be a, a nice classic FPS like Quake and the Quake franchise. I've heard of that. <clears throat> it comes from the small town of Mesquite, Texas. Or you you've heard of Quake? I mean, <laughs> not earthquakes. We're talking about oh, a quake. Oh. The uh, the precedent setting, the amazing id software published Quake uh, first person shooter. Yeah, and I've and I've heard so many people say ID instead of id. Oh, <clears throat> I am probably one of those people. You know, back in the day, because I mean, jeez, I think the first time I got introduced to Quake was at a, uh, a cyber cafe. And uh, I didn't own. Do they uh, even have those anymore? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to. Um, everywhere. It's yeah, called everywhere. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> everywhere you know, think, is internet. Uh, once again, and this shows maybe some of my uh, incompetence because I haven't traveled there. But in parts of Asia, I, I think there's still some cyber cafes, not not the, the you know arcades that we're talking about, but actually cyber cafes, if you will. But I don't know. So back in the day before, uh, really, I mean, everybody had dial up internet if they even had dial-up internet at yeah. all and i mean cell phones were barely even a thing <laughs> back in this day cell phones were i think sprint and at&t were just bringing cell phones to north america around this time this was when quake came out <laughs> you know? and, and, and do you remember that feeling the first time because we probably played before that some of the ones that came a little bit before right you had your doom you had wolfenstein 3d but Quake was different, man, the first time you loaded that up. Yeah, I mean, you've got... And then even the mines that came behind it, you know, like the same people who brought you Commander Keen, you know, or a Doom or something. You know, you can see evolutions of... But I remember, you know, I think the game Quake itself was... What it represented to me was it was the first true multiplayer game I ever experienced. It was probably Quake 2, you know, that I'm actually going to say that about is... Uh, but I think that's when I was really... Like, oh, this does this have multiplayer or is it Quake 3? You know, it's like, you know. Quake but, 3 Arena is where that really blew that, up. That's though. what I'm saying. It really blew up because yeah. we, we would, that's how I think I've talked about it from time to time. There was a, a server in Denver, Colorado, and I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, but in Denver called The Cooler. And that had the lowest ping of any server that was hosting Quake. And so, you know, th like back in the day, there, there, the game publishers and the game developers, they didn't run their servers. They didn't have no. a, a game server that you, you had to own the game. You had to download the game, make sure that your PC ran with the, your graphics accelerator, your sound cards, everything jived. And then you had to figure out a way to get a, a low ping type uh, server somewhere that you and all your friends could go connect to that server would host the multiplayer games for you to play so quickly explain explain to me the noob here what is low ping that sounds like a, a character from like big low, trouble in little china yeah, like low latency you know just like that your packet loss is really low uh you know so you have a fast faster internet now, connection. now now hold on you're you're giving the layman's terms let me get into the technical of this for two seconds because that's that's where i live so <laughs> that was pretty technical if you're my it, mom <laughs> you're, you're probably right. You're probably, probably right. Just use science words there. When 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 uh, when you are on a network and you're communicating, the time that it takes for the information from you to get to somewhere else and back, right? That's the speed, the latency. 
that it takes to do that. And the faster you can get there and back, the better you're going to be at being able to click on heads back in the day when you're playing an FPS because it wasn't like today. They didn't have all this error correction and time correction built in where, you know, modern game realizes the lag and compensates for that. Isn't this a reference not, uh, ping? Doesn't that come from pings in outer space? That's a, or, you know, a sonic Maybe. ping or something like that? That's what Maybe. I thought the I, reference I, I always go back to sonar, the idea of like, you know, yeah. send one ping and, you know, yeah. sends out the sound and then the sound wave comes back. One ping only. I'm doing Sean Connery one, from the Hunt for Red October. Yeah. A single ping. Good stuff. So <laughs> so you get you get that whole latency idea. And and back in the day, the lower that latency was, the more fun it would be because you would definitely be clicking on people. Well, and it gave you an advantage back. There wasn't oh, yeah. a, a, a leveling system, if you will. So if you had a fast, super fast computer and you lived right next to the server, then you're probably going to kill people just a half second faster because you you're going to see them a half second before they see you. So That's the right. advantage is there for you. And uh, so there's, so games like Quake, companies like id, you know, people like, of course, these are all, a lot of them are great friends of mine, you know, like Adrian Carmack, uh, great guy, uh, wonderful. John Carmack, I kind of knew a little bit, but he's, you know, it, it, our children went to school together. Like his son's younger than my daughter. Yeah. Went to the same what about school, Romero? R- Romero, John Romero, I've, uh, I don't, I wouldn't call him like close personal friend, but he's definitely a good industry friend. And I've been to his house, you know, so I'll say that I, you know, I, I worked with John on um, some stuff that they were doing for Nokia back in the day when he had a company called monkey stone with Tom Hall and Stevie case, uh, where they were making uh, mobile, games very much they were wasn't a porting company they were making first party software uh first party games and so it was uh pretty neat uh to see how all the minds out of there you know you also had like uh you know paul steed uh you had kevin cloud he had people like sandy peterson in there american mcgee tim willis i mean you had some really some of these people who've gone out and I mean, these are icons of the industry. You know, American McGee, if you look up the, the game Alice, you'll see, you know, he has a whole world over there. Sandy Peterson, my Lord, go look at the Cthulhu stuff that he's done. The, yeah. Yeah, you know, my Lord, the the, the video the board game uh, for Cthulhu with Sandy for Green Eyed Games is, I think their Kickstarter raised $2.2 million. Well, that's that's something that, that the whole uh, id software thing kind of blossomed, right? It was you had so much concentrated talent that early on in that area of gaming. But we didn't know it, right? No, we didn't know but it, it just sort of just, blossomed. Yeah, I mean, these were a lot of crazy guys from uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, some some dudes from other parts. So here out in the east eastern uh, suburb of Dallas, you know, and, you know, all the, the rumors about how it started, like, oh, well, there's a 24-hour pizza par- uh, parlor there. <laughs> and that, that part of that's true, <laughs> you know. But then don't ever forget the original Quake. Who did... The soundtrack. Oh, that's right. Trent Reznor. That's right. Nine Inch Nails. And so very early on, this game represented much more than just a really great FPS. It was uh, a merging of like a lot of different ideas of what interactive entertainment could be and would be. You know, and this is 1996. If anyone wants to look it up, I think it came out summer of 96. The timing with technology, too, because that game couldn't have been made a couple of years earlier no. to be what it was. No, OpenGL, all that yeah. 3D acceleration. Yeah, it landed yeah. with, with, like, think of what 3DFX was doing at the time with their new cards coming out. I mean, if you played that game with those cards, you saw something on the screen that you'd never seen before, ever. <laughs> the fun thing the great part about being a part of this you know here here it goes back to me i know you always love how i point out talking about (laughs) me but my dad hates me uh so it's that my experience was this is we were all figuring it out in the real time you know at because the hardware couldn't keep up with the software that we were making and so john carmack's game engine uh, the guy I worked for, Mark Randall, over at Terminal Reality, his game engine 
these guys were literally cutting edge. They were using quaternion math formulas to do, you know, cloth simulations, you know, things that you just were like, what? I don't even know how to spell what you just said. And they were pushing the limits of all the hardware to such a degree. I would say every other week we had someone from some hardware company or uh, Dell or AMD or someone like that in our house. Uh, the guys from Alienware, Frank, when he was starting Alienware before it was ever owned by Dell. Hello. Um, they, they all were saying, show us what you're doing. And we're going to try to make some hardware to help you do what you need it to. And so you had for a, a you know, probably still exists a lot to this day, but for a moment in time, that hardware had to progress so rapidly because of all this great software coming out led by games like Quake, Quake 2, stuff like that. So yeah, the good news is all those hardware manufacturers were literally in the houses of each one of these developers watching, listening, getting alpha code, getting beta code, uh, and doing hot, like literally soldering stuff down in the lab and, and sending it by, you know, FedEx, you know, there's one of these cards ever exist. Tell us if it works, if it does, we'll go into a form of production. You know, it wasn't just like that, but something like that because it was happening so fast. So the cool thing, man, is video games really drove so much of what we've got in the way of HD video, uh, high-speed data transfer over networks. It's not Prawn that built the internet. It's multiplayer gaming, you know? It really is. And so anyway, that's, I just, I get excited. And all that came right out of here, Dallas, Texas, baby. Woo! <laughs> and all that stuff is, it, it happened during just this bubble in time because computing had become... Uh, let's say, early mature. It wasn't quite what it is today, but it definitely had passed its infancy. And so we had the capability to, to do things like display, finally, millions of colors on the screen and to actually turn polygons around on the screen and, and do things that prior to that mid-90s were far more difficult. Uh, and, and what the end result of that was when you had such creative minds, the, these folks that we're talking about, coming together by, you know, somewhat by luck, uh, you know, making that that happened at that exact moment in time with the mentality they had and the passion they had for that creation spawned what we now know uh, as the modern FPS, right? They, they wouldn't be around if it wasn't for these games. Well, no, no, not at all. And then anybody who loves id or Quake, you know, is familiar with a, an annual uh, thing it happens here in Dallas called QuakeCon. Yep. And this used to be a BYOC, which means bring your own computer. And you used to have, well, you still do. They still have a big, huge BYOC. And people come in every single year, fly in from all over the world with a, a tower computer underneath their arm, their computer, their keyboard. And uh, you play Quake against each other. And it is a death match, you know, and it's winner take all. But back in the day, before all that was really a thing, they had, we had the CPL, the Cyber Athlete Professional League, um, that was started to host tournaments you know for capture the flag and stuff like that for quake and that we're quake too and um so you know that was about 1997 1998 right around there and so you know that was still where we didn't have very fast internet even so a lot of these were land-based competitions you know these weren't sit at home and play on your own computer you had to physically bring come yeah. and then they had this a land you know they had a fast 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 connection all of a sudden yeah you and, remember when you first got your first hundred meg card oh my for God. the network holy crap when when you had a hundred and then i had an it guy who wouldn't limit me he wouldn't put me on the <laughs> 10 100 you know he would he'd be like yeah you know you can because <laughs> like but yeah the one if you ever could get full speed at the office where we had like a t3 <laughs> i think at the oh time. my god it was <sighs> amazing yeah. Jeez. But yeah, so there was a lot, this whole thing with the evolution of not just first person shooters, but first person shooters as a community building uh, tool, if you will, that bring, it does bring people together, even though we're killing yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah. But it's so much fun, man, because you'd, you'd have those, you know, somewhat instant respawns somewhere else on the map and you'd go out and do oh, it again, depending on how you had that set up. asshole like me knew where those spawn points were. And then you spawn camp. On them. Are you, are you, are you a spawn camper? You're mm. a filthy spawn camper, aren't you? And that wasn't, wasn't me. But if you hear a rail gun, 
you know, it's probably me. No, I, w- I was always a fan of the rocket launcher, to be honest. Absolutely. And then ro- and then the jump, don't you Fragging, remember? The, oh, my gosh, when, that was so much that, fun. To master that jump that with the rocket launcher, that was... That was great. Uh, like, if you could do that, you were uh, one of the best Quake players out there. Oh, but yeah. It was so fun. But who would have ever thought the industry that got, got launched out of that? Because I think if it... And I wasn't at it. I, I could call Mike Wilson and ask him, you know, uh, back he was doing marketing for, for these games. But uh, at, inside of it, after, after he left a little company called Dwango. So if anybody ever wants to go way back, go look at Dwango, D-W-A-N-G-O. And uh, <laughs> I'll show you the beginning of, of a lot of other, the, what we're talking about here. But uh, community building through multiplayer gaming is... Uh, an industry that built itself, right? And I think that's the greatest thing about Quake is it allows you to refine your skills. I think we referred to this in previous conversations, and we can talk about it again later with uh, sports being, you know, canceled, like, you know, NBA, NFL, WNBA, stuff like that. You can absolutely hone your skills uh, by practice, practice, practice in in a first-person shooter more than you can in any other competitive sport uh, necessarily, you know, figuratively speaking <laughs> so uh it, it was just really neat to see that a game like this spawned an entire new industry you know yeah. i mean not by itself but it was a heavy contributor and well, you know, think, of, think of what came out of all of that from a, a gaming evolution so if you like these games and you play fps games look at all the highlights that have come afterwards and and you think of like halo Right, Halo's a oh, yeah. massive franchise. Wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this. Call of Duty, which I know you're a big fan of, wouldn't mm. exist if it wasn't for this. And how many countless others spawned because of the capability and the the early games like Quake, like Doom, that well, type of thing. And I have I have a point. I mean, the answer is 732. If you ask how many, I'm just <laughs> I don't know. I don't that know seems that. very exact. I don't know how you got to that. <laughs> well, it's leap year. <laughs> oh. uh, so what I mean, what the thing that, that to answer part of your question though, a lot of them looked similar because they used the Quake engine to build yeah. their entire game around. Because once someone like id, that's where id made their true money was engine licensing. And so you go look at somewhere like Fortnite. Well, that's epic. And they have a little game engine called Unreal that actually runs. uh, And you can, you know. Also an amazing engine, by the way. Incredible engine. Yeah. See, so many, so many games based on that engine. It's unreal. How many of them? (laughs) Yeah. After firing the nail gun. Your opponent will hear the scream of galvanized steel. Steel. Splitting the air at tremendous velocity. When you hear him suck his last breath, it is safe to stop firing. Introducing Quake for the N64, now with a two-player deathmatch. Well, maybe one more shot, just for good measures. (laughs) The thing about the Quake engine was they had perfected something that as soon as it was perfected that the way of how how to how many textures could be displayed on the screen you know whatever how fat your frame rates were your connection your, you know all of these little things and i'm using like five thousand foot view kind of words here but when you're just putting all that stuff together into a video game that out of the box for x amount of dollars you know you've got this whole new experience of multiplayer gaming being able to accomplish that that frees you to you know if you have that engine you can just start designing the most amazing game around that engine you no longer have to worry about how are people going to multiply uh, be, do, be doing deathmatch how 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 many pixels can i have on the screen how many faces can the texture you know how many textures can we have da, da, da. The, well, a lot of that's already decided for you and it's yeah. getting, and someone else is making it better while you're making a better game so there was a whole other idea finally people were perfecting graphics engines game engines that allowed for a lot of other development to just be pure creativity they no longer had to you know i i I gotta tell you i loved the idea of people embracing that from not just another company standpoint because this wasn't uh something that just developers did there's an entire community built on modding those types of games amen ritual entertainment yeah, Boom. you're gonna get into you're gonna get into an entirely different subset of games, and and some of these, uh, you know, they're they're famous on their own. 
they, they became their own product and grew into something of their and, own and franchise. And because they modded a great, they had a, a great Quake mod and that sold well, then they were able to finance a first party game that they were able to get financed by a publisher or something. Like that, and they actually be, became another company. I can't, look at how many companies formed just by people leaving id software yeah i mean we i could probably 732 <laughs> at one point i'm gonna say yeah because you know in the late 90s it really was the wild wild west for uh video mm -hmm. game publishing uh developers uh they would actively steal like people that you, you would have people from gt interactive who was the publisher for you know quake uh that would go right and meet with say john carmack you know and this is all hypothetical makeup stuff here but say they go meet with him the then they have already sent emails to five other guys at that company saying hey i'm in town meet me at this restaurant tonight at seven it'd be good to hang out with you and then they just look at him and say yeah have you ever thought about leaving you know we could uh you know start a new company and we've got this property that we like man that happened all day long so you saw great companies who had developed something amazing quickly become 10 or 12 companies uh and then bam you had 100 companies and then all of a sudden you had 10 companies again <laughs> you yeah. know what i'm saying it yeah. didn't last long but man you watched it you watched the sharks come into dallas texas at least and we had ensemble studios age of empires terminal reality we were both microsoft published uh, uh developers you had id software you had people like ritual entertainment popping up and i mean it's just we had talent here to <laughs> like crazy oh 3d realms and apogee yep. doing you know i mean hello and so the talent that was here was just so undeniable and you start i always blame john carmack's ferraris for breaking up a lot of companies because people were like well carmack's got a ferrari I should have one too. <laughs> yeah, like that. Well, do, do what he does, and then maybe. Amen, you know? brother. Carmack's a genius, and you know Carmack. By the way, just this is, we're talking about John Carmack. Um, you know, I knew him uh, on a couple different levels. He also was such a smart guy. Uh, he, his wife Catherine. They uh, have you know beautiful family, but he had a company. I think it's still in existence called Armadillo Aerospace. And it was out on the east side of Rockwall at the, and the, by this old municipal airport. And he was making um, engines. He was making propulsion systems for uh, a particular company uh, that was doing, uh, sending astronauts to the space station, you know. So he was coming up with, th like, <laughs> rocket engines, you know. And I ended up working. Wait, give me with that sound again. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm not a Foley artist, but uh, he, uh, uh, I worked with them on a thing called Rocket Racing League, um, where we were making a video game called Rocket Racing League, and uh, there, but there was a real world Rocket Racing League where we had Delta Wing aircraft that had uh, rocket engines, and they're, you know, driven by a, a real pilot, and it had this. I won't get into the whole thing about Rocket Racing League, but so interesting. But John Carmack's Armadillo Aerospace was actually providing the propulsion systems, and these were liquid oxygen, uh, big balls of liquid oxygen, backfilled with like heated methane. Uh, so there was no moving parts. And so these were big, giant flying bombs. <laughs> I mean, go look up how, how flammable Jeez. liquid oxygen is. And, uh, and so, but what we, he was also doing is we were testing these on earth with this kind of a NASCAR style, uh, a racing, uh, organization called rocket racing league. And, uh, but the test that he was doing was for no moving parts. So these could be used, um, without very many options for failure to be engines to, you know, propulsion systems to lift, uh, uh, you know, machine and send it into space. And then, so it's just, you know, just Carmack's mind and some of the people around there, I'm just telling you, it'll be so far beyond video games, so far beyond video games. But, uh, you know, it couldn't have happened without the, the money from the fans and the, and the publishers and everybody who got crazy about these games and, and made them famous. You know, it's once, once again, Quake and this whole thing. None of these games would be anything if it wasn't for the fans that continually shelled out the dollars, that played the game for hours and hours and hours and hours, that did all the BYOC tournaments and the competitions. Like the, it's truly 
you know, something great got created with Quake, but the fan base behind Quake is what made it great. I mean, I, I can tell you, I ended up spending probably thousands of hours in total playing Quake and its sequels and yeah. So I I logged what two hours plus a night playing Warzone, you know, right, right now with other guys who are game publishers. Some of these guys don't play games. Like uh, like let's say uh, Nigel over at Devolver Digital uh, and Jr. Uh, like I'll be playing Warzone with them, and uh, you know Nigel has no time to really be playing games at all or doing anything fun <laughs> because he's got to make fun games for a living. You know, what they do at Devolver uh, and how much Nigel does over there is incredible. So, yes, kiss, kiss, Nigel. I love you. I respect you. <laughs> but but Nigel, too, is infatuated by, uh, you know, Warzone. But what we all of us have found, like, to just today, just today, I had a, a phone meeting with JR. And we, we have a scheduled meeting today. And <laughs> I said, hey, man, can we do it an hour later, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, let's just do it in war zone. And I thought he was kidding. But I realized, you know, most of our important stuff we'd already covered in previous uh, day. And uh, <laughs> so we literally had a meeting while playing war zone today <laughs> talking about work. <laughs> so once again, you know, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, multiplayer gaming, you, you can make them anything you want. This episode brought to you by Fetch. Give the gift of play. Fetch is a game for dogs. What is it? It's a ball. Fun, safe, slightly minty taste. Do you know that personally? Have you have you checked that out and tested that? Yeah, the, the ball does have a minty uh, smell and it does have a slight minty flavor. Hey, if my dog was gonna chew on it, and I love my dog, I at least had to taste it once, right? Just to see. If you buy a game of Fetch for $20, and that includes free shipping in the United States, we at Special Reserve will match that ball, giving one to another dog, a dog that's in need. We work with an organization called Street Dog Project here in Dallas, Texas. So every single time someone buys a Game of Fetch for $20, you get a ball and a dog that's homeless and dire physical need that's being fostered and sheltered also gets a ball. Why not give a Game of Fetch today? Go to specialreservegames.com, buy a Game of Fetch or two for your dog and share the gift of play. Mm, and you're right, this, this is minty. Yeah, you know, we, we talk so much about the, the, the old games. One of the cool things about how I've dug into the old library of, of these games and, and what I've found is people have uh, found ways to take the WAD files, the actual like game content files from the old uh, Doom and, and, and those types of games, and they build a brand new engine. And that got me thinking a lot about uh, remakes of games, how people are taking the old properties and, and just redoing them under today's graphics and being able to, to modernize them on a new system. Uh, one of the most recent ones, uh, that has just come out had to do with Final Fantasy. Huge franchise, obviously. Square uh, bringing Square Enix now. I, I'm so used to calling them Square oh, because their original name was Squaresoft, right? Yeah. From from way, way back in the day. But, uh, you know, you take a property like Final Fantasy and you take one of the most successful of all time, Final Fantasy VII, and you look at the graphics now, and we talked about the PlayStation Classic before having that. And even if you grab that and you plug it into your, your computer, you, you see how dated those graphics are. But they were, at the time, they blew me away. Like, just when it first shifts from the, the kind of the regular view of the the pixelated characters to that that video, when you see the city and you're going through the city and everything, that was mind-blowing at the time. That was like one of the first games I ever played on the first PlayStation and it was so good, and I just got lost in that world for months, really. I mean, there's so, so many hours of gameplay there. Well, cinematics became you know, like a whole new thing. You, you, you know, developers started hiring people that would specialized in just cinematics. They didn't do anything else on the game. They didn't do any art in the game. They were just nope. the cinematics guys. It's about the all about the cutscenes, like the different like yeah. the storytelling elements to happen between the levels or whatever. The game company hired writers for these things, and you didn't have writers back in the day. No, I mean that's, you've seen Hollywood try 
try to come in on multiple occasions. One of our titles, one of the, you know, we did uh, Max Payne and uh, Max Payne was actually sold off to movie studio and uh, had become a movie. And who's in that again? Can't remember. Mark Wahlberg. Was it Mark Wahlberg? Yeah, it was Mark Wahlberg. And Mark Wahlberg, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken, was the majority like owner or producer or something that yeah, okay. I think he had he the biggest the money in it for some reason. But you know, the game took five years to come out by the way. And it had a lot of technological advances and whatnot, but the storyline and then the, the way that it had this kind of film noir type, uh, you know, element to it and the way that they use their, this cartoon graphical presentation in the marketing. So it had a really aesthetic, a big aesthetic that, that, you know, but Hollywood's never been able to take a video game really, and and make it better. They could no. only rip off how cool the game was and try to make it a cool movie. I have never seen Hollywood take a video game franchise and make it better. No, uh, but you can certainly see how video game companies are looking back on these older properties and saying, "How can we take that classic?" And make that better. How can we do it yeah. as a video game? Yeah. And that's that's essentially what Final Fantasy VII's remake is trying to do. They've they've you know completely overhauled the visuals in you know now real 3D graphics instead of you know this kind of pseudo 3D where they had painted backgrounds and whatnot. They're doing everything in 3D, and you're getting uh, deeper into the story. But you're you're talking about these elements, these things that existed in a game like that when they started to do cinematics and started to have writers and started to have all these story artists that that would come in. I I think that gave uh, an opportunity for a classic like that to be kind of ingrained into gaming society. And then now you go back and you say, oh, well, why wouldn't we remake that? It did so well back then. Imagine what we could make it look like now. You know, well, but- to any of those people wanting to make a new game, you just let me know. Give us a call. My uh, email is <laughs> Saul Goodman at uh- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but remakes remakes aren't aren't new. Remakes have been around for a very long time, and I was I was looking at some of the old uh, games, not just on console but on PC. Uh, there was a lot of remakes when VGA graphics started happening. You would see a lot of the older games that came out in CGA and EGA get a complete overhaul for VGA, and they would just redo the entire game in VGA because now you could actually have you know higher color counts and more pixels on the screen, higher resolution. Uh, think King's Quest. Uh, the the early King's Quest, I, I want to say it was like four or three or something like that, ended up getting a remake in VGA. And there's multiple examples of that happening. So just so, to be clear, a, a video game remake is is not necessarily the same as a as a Hollywood remake. When they when they remake a movie, they're they're kind of telling the same story in a different way. A video game remake primarily involves just updating the graphics and the playability. Like it's just a better looking game than it used to be. Like just more in line of what today's graphics are like. Yeah. But but you'll still see uh, examples where they will make some of those other improvements. It's just not on the grand scale usually. It's not like we're we're changing the characters and you're cast not starting and, from scratch, right? You're not. No, you're not, yeah. no. You're 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 taking a lot of the basic elements and just updating them, revamping them, new visuals, new sound. Still, kind of the same general play. Well, believe it or not, back in the day when we would want to put out a game in the United States, we had what NTSC format for our TVs. In Europe, they had PAL, P-A-L, and so we actually had to have there. There was very much a European version of the physical games that we sold um, because they only you know, there was NTSC versus PAL that came in a lot on the cinematics. And yeah. on other things that would come into the game, so things wouldn't display properly. You couldn't you couldn't show games. Uh, you couldn't even play a game on your TV. Certain certain times, uh, or I mean not TV, you know, but um, you're on your, your your CRT monitor for your PC. Uh, which was a TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's, just, let's just be honest with you. We, we ha- my eyes are so bad now. It has to be because I spent how many freaking hours staring at a basically a flashlight shining in my face. Pretty you know? much. 
I mean, that's Pretty what a CR, an old CRT is. Don't you remember? I We used to play so many games, and we'd turn off all the lights in our office, right? And our eyes would hurt so bad. And uh, our Because you had this glowing tube. Yeah, but don't you? We, <laughs> we made this. We bought this thing that was a tube light that sat on top of your CRT monitor and shot a light right down in front, right down in front of the screen like it was about one inch you know off of your screen but it shot a light down in front of your screen and it helped to soften you know like it, your eye your eyes were adjusting to that light and then the light behind it or some kind of weird sciencey crap and uh, so all of us started buying these little lights you know shine down in front of our monitors so our monitors didn't hurt our face a bunch you know because we were playing quake in the complete darkness yeah. you know, I mean, and, and for hours and hours and hours, hours at a time hours, yeah but yeah there's a lot of different reasons for remakes and you know you always hear you know you see movies remade different ways because they can do more cinematics a lot of times they just ruin the dang movie. Even like Clash yeah. of the Titans, Clash of the Titans that I grew up with, with the bad claymation and stuff and the crack in well, it. It was good at the time. Oh my, no, not just good, great. You know, and when those spiders, you remember, with like with those <laughs> those crazy like like oh I can't remember who it was when they they poked Medusa's head and blood dripped out and like giant scorpions came up out of the uh, the and started battling Perseus and whatnot. Oh my lord, that scared the pejesus out of me, you know. <laughs> and but I never ever got that same feeling watching any of the the current versions because it was like the fun of that movie was that it, you know I knew it wasn't real, but my mind did the rest of the connecting for me, you know. And yeah. that's where I think that video games have been just such a overwhelmingly wonderful example of of entertainment is because man, they're so immersive. Yeah, yeah. And but even some of the older remakes of things that are are not like that were great because at the time the technical jump, you know, being able to do more better graphics and 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 better sound and that type of thing. Think about uh, what Super Mario Brothers, the original Super Mario Brothers, was like the first time you played that, and then when you saw Super Mario All Stars, which came out on the Super Nintendo, which is only one generation away from where that was originally released. All the new colors and the new new look. The gameplay was exactly the same, but so many people were hyped up to be able to get something like that, you know, and play that new version of it. They'd played the game hundreds of times previously, but it didn't matter because they had a place in their heart for this game. And now to see it with these updated graphics and, and do amazing, you know, uh, visuals compared to the original was just great. So. Well, I always would love to get responses from, you know, people that... The, the three or four people that listen to this. Hi, mom. How are you doing? <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> or hi, dad. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I would like to put out a plea. Pre, please, someone make a new SimCity. SimCity. Come on. Oh, SimCity. Sim yeah. City. Like, a, you want, you're Sims. talking about a remake of the original SimCity? Well, yeah. I mean, I want, like, I'd love a new SimCity in the, the, the style of the original one. I don't need a bunch of crazy, funky graphics. Just SimCity. SimCity 2000. There was that was that was uh, it. That's it. Was, That's the last 2000, one 3000. They had, uh, you know, all the offshoots: Sim Earth, Sim Ant, yeah, the Sims, <laughs> the Sims. But once again, yeah. not the same. No, you know, it's just there was just something. I think yeah, the first couple about their first SimCity, SimCity oh. 2000. Yeah, those those were a great sweet spot for that. I, I don't know that I would call what they did after a remake. It really was kind of a sequel. But I yeah. think you're right. I think a, a remake of something around that earlier Just version the logic would of how be great. It works, you know how yeah. things are zoned and the pacing of the game and yeah. what's available and stuff. I, 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 some of that was held back by graphics cards and what sure. you could display on the screen and stuff. So there's a lot of things you can do. Imagine though, if you did a Sim City, let's just say with 8K, an 8K Sim City, same game, yeah. what just can 8K you do? graphics. Yeah. You know that yeah. would be okay. 
I'd buy that for sure. I don't even have an 8K TV, uh, and I would buy that, or an 8K <laughs> monitor, and I would buy that. But uh, but yeah, taking that same concept of the original game with the same mechanics, and then just splashing it up with all the new sound, new look, would boy, that would be really cool. I would love to see them make. Uh, uh, I've been playing these PlayStation. I was telling the art before we started recording. I got myself a PlayStation Classic. They've been playing some of the games on there, and I think they would, they should remake Metal Gear Solid, the original Metal Gear Solid. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a great game. I'm having a lot of fun playing it, but, man, those graphics are dated. It it looks really blocky, really pixely, and it, it would be – I love to see that updated with, with like, more uh, modern visuals and possibly some re-recorded re, uh, dialogue. Uh, some of that stuff does not hold up. <laughs> Snake is no. pretty. Snake's pretty flirty with all those girls he's talking to on that. Yeah, code. they like made he does, a little he... adjustment in today's social climate, right? <laughs> like I, don't, Just... I don't think it's too appropriate for him to be hitting on everybody the way he does. Um, I, I do think though that you know it would be great to hear from some of the fans that listen to the podcast to say to us, you know, what remakes they would like to see. So do me a favor, email me, email Eric at specialreservegames.com and spell it spell it i don't know how to spell oh e r i k it's a different e-r- that's you are right because i i i don't spell it the right way according to smitty so it's e r i k at special reserve games i'm not going to spell all that specialreservegames.com but yeah email me Tell me what games you want to uh, see remade. And uh, if you do, we'll say you get a chance at maybe uh, winning a little something. Uh, Can I put one more thing out there? Um, We also have the ability to take voicemail through this uh, anchor, through the platform that we're podcasting on. So if you look at the show notes, at the very bottom of the show notes, there's a little link that allows you to record a voice message for us. So you can go ahead and do that just on your phone or wherever you're listening to the podcast. And that we can can actually incorporate those into the podcast later on. Yeah, we might actually play your your voicemail back here. But but I think if people reach out and kind of tell us what they want to see remade, maybe we'll enter you into a little uh, a little contest here smitty what do you think no okay that sounds fun <laughs> well the so good what are we giving is, away yeah we have all kinds of things we have uh sometimes physical goodies because of special reserve games or we have some digital codes or uh you know or maybe we could just get eric to record your voicemail for your cell phone <laughs> with his rich deep beautiful That's right. voice <laughs> you you have reached the voicemail of producer dan he's not available right now so please leave a message at the tone Oh, well, I know that I'm, I can use that now for my voicemail. Thank you. I know. You're welcome. <laughs> well, here, I'll do one for you. Hey, I'm sorry. You've reached. Bing, bing, bong, bong. And he's not available. Please leave a message. See, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remakes are, remakes are so much fun. And I, I, I love looking back at, at some of the, the classic ones that I've played. And, and really, I get interested every time I see somebody announce one. You know, like what they're, what they're deciding to redo. Sometimes you kind of go... Oh, you're you're remaking that, really? But <laughs> but you know, that I guess there's an audience, <laughs> and especially if you get anybody from the original uh, development team or the script writing team, uh, you know, there's there's nothing like character development visually, and then from storylines, and you know, that's just going back to Quake. You know, Adrian Carmack, the, his pen, his pencil that drew hell in Doom. You know, anytime. A lot of real fans would see a character, you know, concept art or in-game art. They'd be like, Carmack. You know, they'd know exactly it was Adrian Carmack. So uh, there's, and then there's just no way of recreating that. He's a standalone artist and his pen draws like nobody else. So would you try to make, you know, Quake 3? (laughs) By the way, I saw a funny picture of Romero uh, being uh, forced, quote unquote, forced to sign a copy of Quake Three, which of course he was not involved with. I saw this. <laughs> and he signed it, right? And he said, "I did not make this, John Romero." <laughs> yeah, what a wonderful idea to oh, be able dude, to take that and just hey, think of that on the spot. Hey, I'll tell you, there's you know. a, just to go way off the side, but there's a friend of mine here in Dallas named Jeff, uh, and he had, he still does this, but I'm not quite sure how extensively he does it now. But for quite a while, he had albums. Of, of all kinds of people. And when he would meet other famous people, he was a concert promoter and uh, he worked in the music business a lot. He was an artist himself. But he would get uh, like, oh, uh, 
what is uh, he would have like Donnie? What's his name? The 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 sister Donnie uh, Donnie Osmond. Donnie Osmond. Sorry, he said Jeff would get Donnie Osmond to sign NWA straight out of Compton, you know. <laughs> and so like he would carry these vinyl records around, and he would do it specifically. He had a thing like he would get so and so to sign that album. So he has a whole collection of vinyl albums signed by other famous people who are very contrasty <laughs> to the actual artist. With that nothing signed. to do with the original no, production? No, no, no. That's no, funny. Not at all. Not at all. That's great. It, it's just, it, it was just one of those little, so in and of itself, he was creating art. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know why I brought that up, but it no, was just kind of that, that's great. Yeah, it was just kind yeah. of one of those strange things, like when you just, uh, yeah. you know, individual artists, you know, that video games launched, uh, you know, their their art is preserved, you know, all the all the time in a digital format forever and ever. It never fades. It, the colors are the same, but you know, with 8K, 4K, they just look better, right? So mm, that's right. If you think, that's right. If you think your game can be remade to look better, great. But if you're trying to, you can rarely go back and capture the magic and the excitement that was, uh, you know, around your game when it came out the first time, just because it's a, it's a moment in time, you know, like every, we're talking yeah. about Quake, you know, it's 1996. I think about what I, what else I was doing while I was playing Quake. You know, oh, I worked here, I worked there. You know, I, I dated this person, I was broke. You know, whatever. Like it brings back all kinds of memories. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think it's fun. Just like a good record or a good movie, a great game. I, I agree. I, I, I think there's just some magic behind that. And, and you're right. Trying to recapture that moment in time is uh, it's going to be extremely difficult. People were very excited about Final Fantasy Remake. Like I saw people playing it and posting screenshots and videos of them playing it. So a lot of people are feeling very, very nostalgic for that game and are playing the new version of it now just to kind of take a trip back. Yeah. And and it seems to be received really well, which is great. Good for good for Square Enix, you know, to be able to to put something out like that. Absolutely. Look, I'm involved in things. Dangerous things. So? So keep your distance. What was his name again? Cloud. Cloud Strife. This is a one-time gig. When it's done, we're done. Come on, nobody do something this crazy just for money. You gonna stand there and pretend you can't hear the player crying out in pain? I know you can! I was thinking about uh, a lot of what we're doing uh, lately, uh, just within Special Reserve, and I... I don't know if you want to talk about this, Smitty, too too much, but I, I kind of think it would be a neat idea to give some people a little bit of a window into maybe some of the interesting difficulties that can come up when you're trying to put together a release. You know, just some of the some of the behind the scenes, the challenges, because I think one of the, the advantages we can we can have on here is maybe share carefully <laughs> some of the the roadblocks the, that we have to overcome uh, that maybe your average person doesn't know about. Um, no sleep. <laughs> no, boy, boy, is that true. Let's just go with no, no sleep. Well, well, my biggest hurdle in publishing physical games nowadays is trying to honor the game, you know, in, in a physical form and doing it correct because a digital game can get uploaded and updated in a second, you know, nowadays. And that also goes with the code. And uh, so as far as needing patches or if there's any DLC, like additional content. And so, you know, my initial hurdles are picking a game that we can make physically uh, for a variety of technological reasons or just interest level. And then, uh, making sure that it's pristine so that if we put out a physical game, it doesn't require a bunch of uh, updates or patches or any to be. And so those are some weird hurdle, hurdles that probably nobody really thinks about that I go through before we even know if we can, what we have, you know, how valuable this thing would be. Is it worth putting out physically because it's, you know, it's a physical cartridge, but someone's going to have to down download 10 patches over the next 10 months to keep it, you know, like there's a, a lot of different things that we look into. So 
that's just a one strange hurdle. That's that's what they used to have to do. Like they didn't release a video game until it was ready. Like they couldn't. Oh, man. They couldn't like release a video game with bugs, although they did. I'm sure many companies did. But you know, Nintendo they they made sure it was perfect before they. Well, and I'll tell you that for someone that was in, we we had crunch time, you know, and it was just ungodly so leading up to e3 or something and that was a big show we had to get a, a playable version because we had to give live press demos to live press people that were going to come and give us a live preview or not a review but a you know a preview and hype our game while we were still making it when it was still in alpha a lot of us didn't even have betas by the time you were beta you were like almost basically done here you were going to have gold master candidates coming out so we used to burn those to CD or DVD, mail them off and get the, you know, and then they would do bug testing up at Microsoft or whatever, and then tell us what we did wrong. But you were taught. So when we ever went gold master and used to finish a game, we sent it off and then it had to go out to manufacturing and then go to distribution and go to big box retail. So we would finish a game let's just say 90 days before you ever would dream of it actually being shipped to a, a store three months. Uh, and imagine how much stuff you find wrong with your own game after you ship the gold master and everyone starts playing it around your office, you know, and just be like, yay, look what, oh my gosh, we misspelled quake. Oh my God. What do we do? You know, no way to fix it. No way to fix it without putting it's out a patch. It's already too late it's, at that And point. it's already gone. But that's the beauty of where we're at now, right? We don't have to get that far not out me, anymore. Not me. You know I mean? You know on our physical game. like if I we, know. So, so just if anyone cares to know, if you had a digital game, let's say like Hotline Miami Collection. You know, Hotline Miami Collection is available right now on the eShop for Nintendo. You can download it right now. It's amazing. But for me to actually get it to load from a cartridge, it actually has to uh, go through a whole new round of testing, you know, quality assurance testing, and uh, it usually requires a porting house. And so it, it's a different, it's same game, different file type, you know, if you will. It's got a little, it's got a little transport device that gets it off that ca that, that uh, cartridge into your little device. So it's no longer just a digital download. So we have to create an installer, if you will, you know, or make it. And then we also, the games have to load in a certain amount of time or your code is bad and Nintendo or Sony or anybody would reject it. So if you can't make your game load within a certain number of seconds or milliseconds even uh, from a cartridge, that's one of the biggest things that Nintendo will come back and say, no, sorry, you know, your game's great. It plays completely well on the platform, but you're, you can't get it the uh, to install fast. Yeah, and that's that's essentially putting you back at you know square one kind of thing. So you have to go back to the beginning. Yeah, little teeny tiny things that stop the whole train in its tracks. Yeah. And so this, and none of that is even considering some of the stuff you have to do huh. after you've oh, got approvals. Actually, that's the easy part. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying like, oh, that's the easy part, man. <laughs> Well, and I don't want to go too far into it, but you could probably, we could probably spend a half an hour on getting approval from a ratings board. Whoa. Well, like ESRB, uh, that's a, usually a 10 day minimum turn just to even get a rating back. Uh, but have these games already been rated? No. That's, that's an interesting thing when you have an electronic release versus when you have a physical release. Now we have to start the process over. Really? Oh, it's really it's weird. And I mean, you can I think go all the way back to the origins of uh, PMRC, you know, and how they used to rate uh, albums. All this was done for the retailers, physical retailers. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when I first started Special Reserve Games, we did not have to put uh, any kind of rating. And in in America, it's the ESRB. Uh, like you know, and so the inner uh, I don't even remember the anagram what it stands for. <laughs> <laughs> but but inter, inter, uh, no, entertainment software rating board something like that yeah that's right anyway ESRB uh, and <clears throat> excuse me so we didn't have to put ESRB ratings or any kind of legalese on our boxes at all because we were direct to consumer and so we were doing several things we were doing an uh, an age verification be, 
and you have to, you know, verify your identity because you're purchasing it online. You're paying with a credit card or PayPal. So at one point or two points, we were making people verify, yes, I am who I say I am. And you had to be over 18 to buy it. So we were already doing it if it was a mature game. Um, but so there was a lot of uh, that's what the ESRB was set in place. It was to protect the virgin eyes of young children, uh, you know, who wandered into a store and you know, had $60 and was going to buy a game and take it home and play it without their parents knowing, you know, I guess that's mommy, what the, that's mommy, what the there's a ray gun on the, on the, on the cover. <laughs> as a former Blockbuster employee, we used to abide by these ratings at Blockbuster, same as we would for movie ratings, sure. you had to. but the parents would come in with the kids, the parents would be there and they'd be renting like Grand Theft Auto or something. Remember, oh, it was the game where you hunt Manhunt or something? Because they didn't know. The parents didn't know. They didn't know. And I'm like, are you sure they can play this game? And the parents are like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. It's mature rated. Like, yeah, it's, whatever. It's got gore. It's got, you know, swearing. It's got all these things. Yep. Like, they had no idea that these games, that it's a video game. How could it be like this? Do you this? remember there, there is a rating uh, that was 17 plus? And that they tried out, I think, for a while. And then they went A That for still adult. exists. Yeah, yeah. No, that still exists. A-O. Yeah. Yeah, AO, adults only. Yeah. But uh, but people don't know what it means. And that's the craziest thing is the Motion Motion Picture Rating Association uh, is there, or is something like that. <laughs> MPAA. MPAA, yeah. yeah. So they, uh, the R, PG, PG-13. In all honesty, that's exactly how they should have rated the yeah. games because nobody knows what the difference between T for T and M mature is. And then yeah. AO, what is that? Okay, yeah. that sounds a okay, I guess. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you ain't kidding. You ain't kidding. I mean, the the whole idea behind having to even uh, go through that process, though, means that even after you've got a bunch of other things done, you've got to pass it through this separate entity, completely different from the the company that you're the platform that you're putting it out on. That has nothing to do with Sony. That has nothing to do with Nintendo. It's a totally separate board that has to give its stamp of approval. And they can shut you down. And they stop Very it all easily. in their tracks. And they also will alter alter my artwork that I can do on my packaging. Um, because their logo, Nintendo's logo, are on this templated packaging, which I totally understand, but that gore and of course overt sexuality or any kind of stuff like that we wouldn't be doing but like the use of blood we often discuss how i can and can't use blood how much blood blood on what blood on there blood on here well if the blood was on here but not on there and i mean it like it comes down to like why is this there sometimes it's such a strange beast so there's a very significant process into rating uh these games and so I, i mean just this isn't telling any industry secrets here when you get a game rated you have to take the script what we call the the localization kit or the lock kit and so every single piece of text that is spoken or displayed in any language on the screen uh could be ui instructions it could be loading screens it could be text that was used in cinematics and cutscenes. anywhere there's words spoken or seen and if there is music that have lyrics, we need the lyrics too. So I have an entire script of the game, which is a gigantic document that has all kinds of strings that show where incidences happen and things that what our people are said. So number one, I have a script and I can find all the cuss words. And then I can find all the descriptions and something bad might happen or whatever. Then I have to go and capture gameplay footage from the game showing each one of those instances I have to do a time code stamp and show what that, and so I have a visual representation of where that instance occurred. And then I also have to document it in the submission form. Okay, at four minutes and 41 of the gameplay video, it shows how Eric, you know, it was gambling, gets up, shoots a guy and says a curse word. And this is the curse word. That is documented in such a way that just like that, I have to do that. I have to do that on my side. And then they tell me if I did it good enough. And then they give me the rating, you know? So it's yeah. not like, like I just send them off all the assets and they come back and go, we think you will get a T14. Here you go. I have to do all the hard work and submit it to them. And then, trust me, they have machines <laughs> that they have robotic machines that will find all the things you didn't. And... Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is all in the name of protecting 
people from being exposed to content that they don't want to see or shouldn't see or, you know, need to be said. I get it. But for the most part, we're not sneaking in like uh, child molester videos in here or something like that. You know, we're just talking about blood on the screen. You know, it's uh, so I understand where we're, we're doing a good thing, you know, by trying but come on, man, <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, I mean, I love well, the guys it, at the ESRB, yeah, but, they, but it's a hard, it's, there are hard rules to live under when you're making yeah. a game about a creature that eats people's heads. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a really strange, hard balance. <laughs> well, and, and, and honestly, honestly, with some of the, uh, some of the games that we have, it, it's pretty obvious what's happening on the screen, so you can explain that. But then now think about how do I explain to the ESRB why Mario is jumping on a turtle and what happens to the turtle when he dies and all that. You know, like you, you start to get into the really odd stuff and, and you have to explain these things. So the interesting thing to me when Smitty and I have talked about the ESRB and, and the process and, and some of the setbacks that you can have uh, that, that maybe your, your, your just average game uh, fan isn't aware of is just some of that legalese, some of that, that minutia that they'll drill into and you got to turn around and go back and make revisions to what you've submitted and, and, and hope that, you know, that you can resubmit it in, in this new form and that that's not going to get struck well, I down tell again. You the, whole, the whole thing about it is there's, they, there's so many obstacles going back to, I think how you were setting it up, how many hurdles are in the way or obstacles. Yeah. Are in the way. There's a lot and you can find all that you want to make sure that you don't accomplish anything or you had to compromise your vision and all that, or you don't. And if you really care about what you're doing and you really care about the end product and what you're going to put out and sell to people for money, um, then if you can figure out a way to make your vision still come through uh, for the product you want to create and, and offer to the fans to preserve this digital art and honor this product and honor the fans, then... You know, that's where I can say that's my job to do the hard work, to navigate all the minutia, to navigate all the weird legal crap and still bring a highly creative, wonderful product to manufacturing. And, you know, I'm not, it's like, woo, woo, let me toot my own horn. But I, it's not, <laughs> I'm not trying to do that as much as just saying you have to have a couple of people who are willing to navigate all this and maintain the creative vision of these different games or whatever to really do it right, you know? So you see a lot of compromises are made in the digital world. Digital downloads have great value, but man, you know, turn the turn the electricity off, being all of a sudden, your, your store's closed, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're not playing, you're not selling games, but physical games, there they are. They live, they're on your shelf. They're just like a great book. You're, until you throw them out, you own them. And there's just something wonderful and comforting about that as a human being, you know, this, this, to have a digital form of entertainment, um, that requires, uh, a console, a TV, a computer or whatever to actually em enjoy and play, but owning it physically, possessing it on your shelf, uh, those kinds of things are just uh, part of the, they give you comfort, you know, it, it's a uh, fun feeling, it's beautiful art, it's collector, it's whatever. So I think that's the reason that all these weird obstacles aren't really obstacles to me. I just consider it part of the job, <laughs> you know, and I that's always right. say I could be digging ditches for a living. I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> pretty, pretty, I have done dig, uh, I've done dug many ditches I've done a lot of roofing I've pulled a lot of nails out of two by fours I don't like that I don't I like sitting inside <laughs> making really cool <laughs> video games so none of these yeah. are obstacles I can't use any of them as excuses they're all just creative yeah. challenges <laughs> I think I, I think that's just it is that when you end up with a company that is dedicated like you are uh, like we are to to putting something like that in in the hands of a fan that at the same time honors what the the developer the original developers of that game did and you see the end result you see the love uh that's put into this that right there kind of shows why that struggle is is real but worth it right it's it's worth it goes back to the whole thing games you deserve is the name of the show and you know we think that you deserve games and games deserve you. But, you know, my whole career is built around entertainment in some facet 
because it's just what thankfully I've been able to make a few dollars doing, but it's something that I, I love, um, telling stories. You know, I love telling stories to people, conveying a feeling and, uh, you know, making people happy if you can. And man, just video games, even though they're violent and they're crazy or whatever, they make people happy, you know, and communities around them are generally pretty upbeat, you know, they're not. And even the competitive stuff, everyone's pretty nice and it's, it's, it's cool. You know, it's just a great place to be. And I'm just uh, honored to still be available, you know, to anybody to, to do something cool in the industry, you know, because like Agreed. a lot of great talent out there. So a lot of great games. I've got so many to talk about. Yeah, you uh, you talk about how it's it's great to be a part of that story. And I think that that's where today's chapter ends. So until next time, I am Eric. I'm Smitty. And I'm Dan. And that is a game over.